Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Shahan Mufti. He is the author of The Faithful Scribe. It's from Other Press, and I'm delighted to have him on the show today. Early on in The Faithful Scribe, you create this hypothetical situation where you're introducing yourself to somebody, and they ask about your background, and you say you're 100% American and 100% Pakistani. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit to start with. <laughs> the beginning of the book got written right at the end, and I felt I really felt the need in that in right at the beginning to talk to my reader directly and address address my reader. The rest of the book is through a more regular, normal, more ne well usual narrative mode. But I, I because I think it was exactly because of that reason because I. I, I wanted my reader to know exactly where I'm coming at this story from. Because when we're talking about Pakistan and, you know, the relationship between Pakistan and America, or if we're talking about the relationship between Islam and the West, which are both relationships that I explore in the book, I really needed my reader to know where I, I was in, in this whole thing. And <laughs> that's where I was, is I am right in the middle of it. But I didn't want to imagine it that way, stuck in the middle, because... I didn't, I didn't feel stuck. I, this, this idea that I'm 100% Pakistani and 100% American or 100% Western and, or, you know, Islamic as well. It's this idea that I, I can look at both places in, in ways that I don't think everybody can. So this, it's the insider outsider perspective, I guess. Right. And in fact, one of the things that you've been doing for the last few years is that as a journalist, mm -hmm. your role has basically been you're a Pakistan based journalist explaining what's going on in that country to Western readers. Exactly. I mean, the book is entirely, uh, well, not entirely, but in a large part is a, is a response to that process of translating as a news reporter in the beginning. And then, I mean, I've been doing a lot of magazine work on, you know, working on a larger canvas, but this book is really a response to that process of me having to explain a place which is in many ways home to an audience far away in America or in the West, which is also home. It was that process, going to Pakistan and deciding to look at... I mean, I've been in and out of the country forever. I was born here in the United States, and then I've been, I've been bouncing back and forth constantly. But it was that idea of formally having to acquire perspective to explain that place to an audience that doesn't know it at all. And a lot of times has really amazing sharp images of the place which are all wrong I describe them as caricatures in the book but that sometimes they have they're that the perceptions of those places are I mean the ideas for the about about Pakistan are, are caricatures and so that is yeah I mean that's why I, in a large part this book is is a response to that process and on the macro level as you're talking about the country one of your key models for describing Pakistan is there's a point where you use the phrase that it has become a central set piece in an international war, speaking specifically of the war on terrorism, mm -hmm. but expanding beyond the immediate war, it seems like that is sort of like ground zero for the, you know, what Huntington has called the clash of civilizations, mm -hmm. and, we, and you unpack that as well. This idea that Pakistan has tried to be a third way, as you describe it, mm -hmm. between the seemingly irreconcilable tension between modernity and Islam. And the more I got into writing this book and the more I did my research, historical research as well, I started to see that this place that I'm described, I, was, I, I knew that I was in, which was in between places, in between West and Islam, or East and West, 
I found that the country that I was writing about and reporting as a journalist was exactly in many ways in between those places. So there's a bunch of characters as well in this book. A lot of my characters, a huge amount of my characters are in between places and a lot of times just between West and Islam. But yeah, Pakistan itself, the more I learned about it, I, I saw this place that was coming out of 200 years of British colonial rule, founded as the world's first Islamic democracy and writing an Islamic democratic constitution, which wasn't as, uh, which wasn't an idea before then, it wasn't a thing. So I found that my story of my life, tra tracing out my life and between these two places in, in the West and Islam, uh, really what I was, uh, it, it was mirrored in some ways or reflected exactly in Pakistan's being torn between civilizations. And this whole idea of the class of civilizations, I, 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 the, departure, the point of departure in the book is the day after September 11th and uh, my experiences on that day. And that's the thing, is that when I go to Pakistan, is that is a, when, for the first time, that I actually see what the class of civilization looks like. Before that, it's just this idea that I don't completely buy, and a lot of people didn't buy that. How is that possible? That In Pakistan, you do see, I, I saw it for the first time, particularly in uh, the Battle of the Red Mosque, which I described towards the later, in the later half of the book. But this, I, I saw, you know, an actual uh, fight going on based on these ideas that Islam and the West are irreconcilable ideas, and that the way of life in these two places can't be ever reconciled. And so that's why I think the Pakistan is really became the perfect example to talk about the class of civilizations, because it's in that country that, that's the country that tried to meld the two civilizations in the first place, the first country. And at what point did your ambition shift from simply describing the things that you were observing and digging out the root causes of what you were observing to taking it to the next level and incorporating your own story into that? Um, it was, I, I think I always knew in some ways that I wanted to tell the story because I wanted to tell the story of Pakistan and I wanted to tell it because I thought I had a specific perspective on this thing. But it really, I guess if there was a point, if there was a moment, it really was seeing my family tree that I encountered in this book. Um, and that's the point where it really came together, really, in, in, re you know, in real life came together for me, when I realized that this story was only told through my family's experiences. And it's the perfect vehicle for the story. Really, that was the moment, I guess, as a writer, that I found the vehicle for the story. Because I found this family tree, which I describe in the book, which basically is a couple of centuries old. And somebody, some ancestor of mine, went to the trouble of writing down a family tree, which traced my lineage back to the, you know, the Islamic prophet Muhammad and his inner circle. I'd, I'd heard about this story, but I'd never knew. I mean, my, this story had been passed through family generations, so I've, I'd grown up with this sense that somehow I'm related <laughs> to the prophet. But I, it was I, this, this, uh, what, looking at the family tree for the first time, seeing that it was actually a written document and that somebody had gone to the trouble of asking these questions and then going to the trouble of answering centuries-old questions, that really put it, uh, just that just crystallized for me because here I saw 
the more, I mean, I became very interested in why and how this thing was written. Right. Less and, in, yeah. And this is a pretty big deal. I mean, this is essentially like not only just finding out that your ancestors came over on the Mayflower, <laughs> but that they were one of you know, the apostles as well. Yeah, that's the perfect example because, you know, that's a belief that a lot of us have. And sometimes it's based on less and sometimes it's based on more, but it's always a faith. It's basically, at the end of the day, it's faith that the history that you're reading that's been passed on to you is based on something. When I became interested in, I really started exploring why, who wrote this, because <laughs> uh, that's what, as a, again, I was working as a journalist, I was in writing, and it instantly grabbed me about this thing, was who wrote this, and why was this thing written, because, and that, when I started digging at the writing process is when I found out a very interesting character, who, who was a colonial subject, and whose son, it turns out, was in the British colonial army. Very much a man caught between East and West. But he, and a, but a man who had also lost, his family had lost their Islamic title, bureaucratic titles, and had, he was in some ways completely violated and ripped of his, his identity, his Islamic identity, when the colonists came. But who was at the same time was embracing the col col colonial enterprise because, and he became rich out of it. And he got land grants and all these things. And so, that was a moment when I, I found this family tree and just the idea, just the exploration of what this family tree was all about. I realized that the story that I'm telling about Pakistan being caught in between East and West and Islam in the West is actually a story that's much larger than my experiences or even my parents' or grandparents' experiences. This thing goes back centuries. You had mentioned that you were born here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And as a first-generation Pakistani-American, what brought your parents over here? My father was the first one who came here as a PhD student. And this was all in the context of the Cold War. So we have the, the Soviets are, are expanding in Asia, South Central Asia, particularly have their eye on the Arabian Sea, possibly Indian Ocean area. So there's a, Pakistan is really caught in between this conflict, emerging conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States. And Pakistan and the India had already gone kind of Soviet. So America really reached out to Pakistan at the time. So actually in the 50s and 60s, America was giving Pakistan more aid, even in, in, in real terms, more than even in some ways right now. So Pakistan and America had become very close at that time. And my father just happened to be, you know, collateral. He just, he, he landed a scholarship that the Americans had, the Pakistani government with the help of the Americans had offered. And he ended up in Michigan, first in Ohio and then Michigan as a student and then as a postdoc. Uh, but then he went back, had his arranged marriage with my mother, which I described as well. Right. And, and that was one of the fascinating early sections is that their marriage basically takes place at the onset of of the war there. Yeah. I mean, that's really where the story begins. And it was a perfect moment in some ways to because to talk about start talking about all of this stuff. Because this is 1971, so the India and Pakistan's second war has just broken out. On the first day, my parents had set their wedding day. Not they hadn't, but their parents had. They hadn't even met each other before that day. This was the day they were getting married. <laughs> this is the first time they were ever meeting each other as well. And that's the day the aerial bombardment started. So the Indian planes were bombing Lahore, which is the city where they were getting married. But they went ahead like good South Asians. They went they had Nothing could stop the wedding. Yeah, that's the moment in which Pakistan's... Uh, this was a war, also a civil war in Pakistan, in which India became involved. But basically Pakistan broke into half at that moment. So the east half of Pakistan broke off to become Bangladesh. So that war happens, and my parents and their, their life together see how it you know ends. So their first few days are, are completely consumed by this war and in which half of Pakistan breaks away. And then their first year together, they also see Pakistan come up with a new constitution, 
which is a much more Islamic constitution, where the idea of Islam really, if this is a balancing act between the West and Islam that Pakistan has, has been playing, that's the moment when Islam really becomes heavily favored. And Pakistan says, all right, you know, and the response to the civil war would be just for all of us to gather around Islam a little bit more. So that's the first year of their marriage that happens, and, and you know, that ends up being the one of the reasons why they decide to leave again. And because of my father, is, who's a professor then in Lahore at the university, his university campus becomes a really hostile environment to him because he's more of a secular man. So that's that constitution that was started, that process that started with the, their marriage really is what ends up driving them away from Pakistan. And that's how they end up here. Right. And then you're born and you live in the United States for the first few years of your life. And then despite all that unrest, in Pakistan, at some point, your parents decided that family trumped political unrest and that it was time to go back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that was the only reason. My father was a tenure-track job. My entire family had green cards at that time, I think. Another year, if they had just pulled through, they would have all been American. I was an American citizen because I was born. I was the only one in the family that was born in, in America. But everyone else, it was just really a matter of months, maybe, that they, if they had just pulled through. It wasn't even like anything... Well, things happened, and I describe those in the book. This was also all after 1979, the Islamic Revolution in Iran, when Islam really captures the Western imagination, American imagination especially, because of the hostage crisis. And so there was a lot of push. I mean, really, at the end of the day, it was the pull from the family back home that in which for which reason my parents decided that they had to that they wanted to leave that they wanted to wanted to be back there was a death there was a couple of deaths in the family but not of any I mean, none of my grandparents were fine it was just a distant relative but it was this idea that they had to choose between family and the rest of their life it becomes a really a tense moment for them and i describe it in the book as my father as a biologist and that's i mean really that's the way he described it to me when i interviewed him about the situation is that it was really biological for him at the end of the day that he he felt that there was a actual physical pull being exerted on him on his gut which was uh, somehow born in the blood so he didn't have a choice in this matter he had to go back and as you get closer to his age when he was going through those decisions how does that pull exert itself on you, or does it exert itself on you in any way? It did, and that's why I'm here, I guess. Because my story, and I, this book is a lot about how stories are told, but my story I knew started in in America, in Ohio in some ways, even though I haven't been back to Ohio in a while. But that's where my story began, and that's what I heard, and that's what I kept hearing, even though I had very little memory. But that's I knew that's where my story began, and and I you know right soon after I, right I even for I mean boarding school is when I and I decided against my parents' will I really didn't they weren't too excited about the idea but that I I I felt like I needed to be back in the United States so it really was reversing the process in some ways that my father of my it was the inverse of the process yeah so I I did end up back but then obviously then <laughs> once I was here. Then the same forces were acting in a different direction, and as a result, I think I've been bouncing back and forth constantly, which, uh, as a writer and a journalist, has actually worked out all right. About how often do you think you fluctuate between the two these these days? Well, I'm I'm there. I'd say maybe three three. I've been there for the past few years. Uh, well, more than a few years, three or four times a year. So it's either 
for you know just to see family or it's or assignments reporting assignments because again this is a country that in some ways is central to american foreign policy and you know everybody the news media are very interested in it so i end up there you know a few times a year to report it the last time i was there was this summer so that's when the the big pakistani election happened it's pretty historic because it was the first real peaceful quote i mean kind of peaceful transfer of power in the country since it became a democracy like 60 years ago so i was there for reporting that this summer in terms of the family connection it's so much different now than it was 30 years ago when your parents were making that choice i mean back then a long distance phone call was a huge production a letter i'm sure it would have taken like a week to two weeks minimum Absolutely. to get here and now you can call them easily you can email them you could even skype them presumably yeah i, know. <laughs> I mean i do i do i really i mean i think my life uh, who i am this book would have been impossible without air travel the kind of air travel we have that's just the that's just the reality of who we are and we're, i'm able to straddle these worlds because the the technologies that are available and it's not just me right i think there's tons of people who are straddling worlds like that geographically different worlds right now and uh, doing okay that's the most amazing thing is that people aren't torn by it anymore in the same way the same way that my parents had to make some really hard decisions completely altering the course of their lives one way or another those forks in the road are you know those are milder for me because i can always switch back and forth and and you mentioned that you were in pakistan this summer covering the elections and you have mentioned that they were kind of peaceful that there was some trouble and i want to touch on that and also circling back to what we were talking about when you mentioned covering the battle of the red mosque a while back there's a term that you use in the book mm-hmm. zulm mm-hmm. it's an islamic term that has some very specific meanings i mean injustice is only getting at the surface of what this term means and that's another term that i'd kind of like to unpack because the way that you describe it really speaks to what we've been describing about Pakistan's attempts to be both Islamic and modern. So zulm is an Arabic word. It's very common. It's used in Urdu as well. Urdu in part is derived from Arabic and Persian and Hindi and all these languages. But zulm is a word, an Arabic root word. It's used to describe injustice. But the roots of the word it describes a lot more. So you know, if you if you uh, if you get a bad grade on your homework or something, and it's you've done you know that that's the zulm as well you've done zulm there so it's not just on the injustice that somebody else does on you but literally it it's a, it would i guess what class captures it closest is to say that it it describes a deviation from the mean that there's a there is a perfect state for things and uh, that's the state that in islam you know islamic thought would be the state that's closest to god's will but any deviation in any direction from that perfect state is zulm and that idea has really captured uh, the imagination not only of people in Pakistan but this idea i mean i what we're seeing in the middle east with the arab spring and all this idea these ideas of justice and islam kind of you know meshing to to form this new political fabric this is you know justice and injustice and zulm are all part of this really part of this that's this idea that, that we have to erase zulm from society this deviation from the perfect state but in pakistan's case it becomes really difficult because here's a country that's that's trying to try to path already between two you know ideas which is western and islamic islamic democracy this idea that 
that the perfect state is actually in between two different opposing ideas in some ways, or at least two ideas. Anytime it tips over one way or the other is in a way a deviation from, the, and the mean itself is so tricky. A perfect state is such, it's an experiment. It's an, uh, nobody, Pakistan was the first one that tried this perfect state experiment. And so Zulm becomes, and so everybody really, I mean, on both sides, Clay, this is the idea of Zulm becomes really potent for those people on siding, fighting on both sides of this conflict inside Pakistan because each one is claiming to fight for eradicating Zulm, which is a great Islamic ideal. It becomes yeah, murky. And, and very precarious because, as you said, if Pakistan tries to reach out or to prove itself to Western-style democracies too far, then... The that's Islamists yeah. start saying, well, that's Zulm. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if they try to reach out too far to the Islamist forces, mm -hmm. then the Western-style democracies are going to look at them and say, well, you know, you're not ready that, to play with us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they'll, in a the way, be saying that's Zulm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's really, I mean, that's why, the, again, the departure point in the book was September 11th, and it, that really was the moment where it came together for me for many reasons that I describe in the book with the phone call that I get from a federal agent and all this, and I realize that my, my, my name and my own family history leads back in certain places, but really for Pakistan, because it wasn't just this idea all of a sudden that we started talking about Huntington, Huntington's ideas and Bernard Lewis's ideas of a clash of civilizations. It was also the war actually landed on Pakistan's doorstep, on Pakistan's border. So it just wasn't this conflict of ideas. It became a real conflict of a hot war. On Pakistan's border, it's been caught, and it has completely been caught. And the real politic of it is is, is complicated. And, you know, the politics of it all is very complicated because Pakistan has literally been trying to walk the line between American goals in Afghanistan and its own goals and the Taliban's goals in Afghanistan. So this balance is happening in so many different ways, and and that those are the kinds of strains that are that they show in the country when I go and cover it. Obviously, every day in every conversation, these strains are showing. And America is a big part of that conversation. If there were one essential point that you would want to communicate to American readers about all this, what would that be? It's interesting because <laughs> despite what, I mean, everything I've described, is, uh, a lot of it sounded pretty precarious and scary. But I think my book... And its very essence is pretty hopeful. I, I guess I'm I'm optimistic about all of this. At the end of the day, despite everything I've seen, you know, the, especially what gives me hope in this whole situation is the history that I've seen. This idea that all of this has happened before, and I talk about the members of my family and all my ancestors who've written their histories of being caught in between East and West colonialism, come and going, and I think it's what I recognize the larger currents of history how the larger currents of history are, are shaping where we are today and kind of sweeping us in one direction or another. And that is, I guess, what, what gives me hope, is that, well, particularly about Pakistan and the United States, is there's so much in common. I write, right at the beginning of the book, I talk about this shared idea of shared language, this idea of being a dragoman and, and you know, being able to communicate between two languages. But the idea that Pakistan and the United States, at the end of the day, are share very common colonial history. The Pakistani... Islamically, again, the Islamic constitution that seems so opaque to us is a document written in the English language. Pakistan's official language is English. The founding speeches, the ideas, all of Islamic, the Islamic history of Pakistan is, is 
it's all in English. These people, the founding fathers of Pakistan, and I talk about them in the book as well, all British-trained, English-speaking people. So there's a lot of uh, there, this idea that there is a shared common language and a shared uh, vision in some ways is really hopeful to me. And I think that that's what's also, I guess, most surprising about this whole thing for myself. Because I wasn't, when I, I went in and I started covering this war, and seeing the violence so up close, it's not a place that I had expected to end up at. But I have more and more. Where do you see your writing career going from here? Do you think you'll be doing more of this kind of personal perspective work, or more long-view journalistic type things? I've always been, throughout my, my work for a lot of my work for magazines and any, any of the longer forms that I've done, is I've always been fascinated with this idea of people on the peripheries of power. But not people completely, you know, not, not people who are out of the frame or the picture of power. I've written about people who are on the fringes of antiquities trafficking or drug trafficking and smuggling and all that. But it's always the characters on the periphery that fascinate me because I find that place to be exactly where the tensions become most interesting, where that the changes in the middle are in the, among the powerful are having an effect. It's not completely people who are, you know, slum dogs whose lives are never intersect with those of the powerful, but those I, those people on the peripheries whose lives are kind of molded by those larger issues of power and politics. In this book, my family happens to be a kind of family who for centuries has been at those peripheries and whose lives have been molded by the decisions made in, by kings and emperors and, and presidents and prime ministers and war. And so that, that's really, I think, going forward, I see myself probably still focusing on this, this area, which I think a lot of people sometimes miss between the extremes of looking at the very powerful and the extremely abjectly poor. And that's the area that I hope to... I think, I, I mean, I don't know, I, I have there, obviously, in the writing of this, there are right now, you know, a bunch of different directions and questions I have, which I, I want to I want to maybe write about moving forward. I don't know if I'll end up in them the way I've ended up in this, but I definitely do know that the treatment of these issues is what's important. My, the fact that my family fit in perfectly into this as the vehicle of the story. I don't know if it'll happen again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll look forward to seeing whatever stories you do find and do choose to tell. For now, I've been talking with Shahan Mufti about his memoir, The Faithful Scribe, which is also in many ways a history of modern Pakistan. It's published by Other Press. And you have been listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast, which is also available on iTunes. If you have subscribed there, I hope that you'll take a moment to rate it and review it and tell your friends about it as well. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode.